Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Cadaver Dogs podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Shepard, here with my co-host, Rob Pasercha. David B. Jacobs will not be joining us today. He's unfortunately on set doing work and film things. But I am very excited to announce that we have a very special guest today, Nora Uncle, writer, director, producer, my business partner, my best friend. I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me on my favorite podcast. I love it because you actually listen to the show. And you know what's cool? It's uh, at two for two, we have directors as guests. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. The last one, uh, Jeremiah Kipp directed a bunch of movies. I actually worked on some of them. So uh, you have to plug your, your movie that's out on Shutter, And I finally got a chance to watch it just last night. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you for watching. A film that is on Shutter is a film that Devin produced and I wrote and directed called A Nightmare Wakes a retelling of Frankenstein through the eyes of Mary Shelley. I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think? It was, uh, it was interesting. It was definitely a different take. It's interesting that you call it the retelling of Frankenstein because it's kind of a biopic that has, you know, flashes of the Frankenstein story within it. And uh, it goes into the quite tragic story of Mary Shelley that I didn't know a whole lot about going into this film. So I found that very interesting. And uh, considering the budget, which I have no idea what it was, it looked really good. It was a good looking movie. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, we had a pretty extraordinary team who really kind of made each and every dollar stretch about six times its usual amount. So <laughs> I'm staying very quiet on the producing side yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> I'm going to let Nora take all the shots on this one. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would say I've been on a shoestring before and uh, if it was a shoestring, it didn't look like a shoestring. Damn. Yeah, it was It was definitely a lot of uh, gum, spit and band-aids to make that thing uh, stick together. Yeah. Blood, um, ink and uh, yeah, spit oh, yeah. is actually pretty accurate. I'm pretty sure Nora <laughs> used her spit on several of the wigs. Oh, really? <laughs> this, this is fair. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's I think uh, well, and we'll kind of get into it today a little bit while we're talking about our topic but it's a uh, definitely a different perspective on Frankenstein that mixes with Mary's own life as she would be writing it and kind of trying to find some of the core moments that might have translated directly from her life into the story itself and through that we can kind of extrapolate a lens in which Frankenstein deals with its current themes I think a lot of what we're going to talk about today directly relates to that and how we as like a modern day audience might see that. So for me, I probably have a very different view of Frankenstein than the two of you who seem to be more intimate with its original author. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what I'm so excited to talk about. So today we'll go around and we'll be discussing Frankenstein's impact on the film industry and the horror genre in general. Um, We'll be discussing some of our favorite adaptations in film and Seeing why this was the story that really has resonated with so many audiences. Frankenstein is actually the most adapted material into film and visual realm. But something that we were discussing when we were approaching our top three, you know, we were trying to figure out what really is an adaptation of Frankenstein. There are so many variables on it, I think, you know, from um, Reanimator, which we'll probably talk about today, to an actual like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. What were you guys thinking about when looking at Frankenstein? How were you guys coming up with um, your list? I was only looking for movies that had Frankenstein in the title. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Granted, I did only choose ones that happened to have Frankenstein in the title. But 
our understanding of the story is so constantly evolving that there's just constantly new versions and new interpretations of it throughout. And I think a lot of it kind of resolves into, you know, the idea of creation and abandonment. It's tragic. Yeah. I think it's cool, Nora, that you only picked movies with Frankenstein in the title because I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to pick any movies with Frankenstein in the in the title or a monster that was exactly like Frankenstein. I was trying to get as far away from Frankenstein, the original story, as I could while still doing a Frankenstein movie. Uh, it's also worth noting a lot of people consider it the first science fiction story. Yes. Um, which I don't believe it is. But it's the first uh, European sci-fi horror story with wide appeal for sure <laughs> but uh i mean there's uh what's his name voltaire wrote kind of a science fiction type story like oh, 200 years prior oh my god no one can see the eye roll that nora just did right now <laughs> yeah yeah so i think it's the f- first story in the vein of modern day science fiction particularly horror science fiction of like right. have we gone too far and i think right have we gone too far are we playing god is one of the core tenets of Frankenstein. There are always going to be stories that are about technology of some sort and how that might affect the human race, right? But this was a story that was very specifically rooted in actual like scientific theory of the time. You know, they came up with this whole ghost story because of Charles Darwin, who reanimated a um, a dead piece of material. And so that coming from something that was so grounded in reality, like you said, that's where Mary was really able to start diving into that deeper and very terrifying question of like, what will we do with this power? What will this technology do to the human race? And so for that, I would say, yes, in terms of Eurocentric and and in terms of popularity, I would put Mary as the mother of science fiction and horror. But I hear your point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, calling Mary Shelley the mother of modern science fiction, I think is fair yeah 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 Wait. so now i'm so curious rob okay so we each chose our top three what was your number three frankenstein audition my number three was the skin i live in which i see as a frankenstein-esque movie but it's different in that the monster is not necessarily a monster that's arguable that's arguable that they're not a monster i think in that film nora have you have you seen this movie I actually haven't, but I do, what you're starting to say, Rob, is really intriguing to me because it connects a little bit to what my interpretation of, of Mary's interpretation of her own novel was, which removes the monster element of it. Well, in, this, in The Skin I Live In, it's an awesome movie that you have to watch. Antonio Banderas, he gives him some different skin. Is he a cosmetologist? What is he? He creates this synthetic skin and that yeah. he puts... Um, I, I forget the character's name, but he puts the person into the skin, the skin that they live in. Yeah, yeah. He changes their skin. And it's this weird kind of identity bending genre. And the difference is that rather than resurrecting the dead, he creates a monster out of someone else and turns them into what they foresee as a monster. But then it surpasses Frankenstein in that they decide they're no longer a monster and agree with the skin they live in. It's a really interesting movie, but I consider it a Frankenstein movie because it has a mad scientist who plays God and his creation and him have a falling out. I think it's a really good one. And or I'm sure this is exactly what you're going to say. 
the book actually explores, you know, who is the monster, the creature, and who is the man, to quote um, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it really does explore that, you know, because the whole entire time the creature is just in pain and is just trying to understand. I mean, he was born out of nothing, out of darkness, out of death, really, and is trying to understand this dark world that he lives in. And the only person that he knows, Dr. Frankenstein, just rejects him and does not give him love. And so it really does question, like, what makes a monster? And I think that's that goes right back to what you're saying, Rob, is in The Skin I Live In, we do question, you know, even though the doctor in that movie is doing this supposedly all for good, like, is he really evil? And that twist brings up that question this whole entire time we're cheering for somebody who is not as good as he seems. You were saying that how it surpassed Frankenstein in that the person who's had this monstrous thing done to them, they, they accept themselves, right? And I would actually say that's part of the journey of the creature in the novel, where the creature finally realizes, yeah, oh, I'm not the monster here, Victor is. And the, the, the scientist is the one that really is the true evil. And, and all the monster wants to do is, is just live and, and has fully accepted himself by the end of the book. So I would say, in fact, that actually sounds like a pretty like direct adaptation in a really cool way. In my interpretation of the novel, I see a lot of similarities between the creature and an early 1800s woman who is immediately hated and mistrusted simply because she is born into a particular body um, and her having to learn how to find acceptance and understanding and knowledge um, through a world that is set to hate her no matter what. Nora, what was your number three film? My number three, Bride of Frankenstein. And that's simply because it actually takes some of my favorite sequences from the novel and actually does put them in the movie. Unlike Frankenstein, uh, it actually does try a little bit of including some of the actual emotional themes. I'm curious what those are. What what? Because I, ha- I honestly have no memory of this film. Um, and I'm so curious what parts it does take from the novel and puts into the film that the um, a, the first I want to say the first one because this yeah. is technically a sequel. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely better than the first one. Yes, That's for yes, sure. It's probably the best of the Universal Frankenstein movies. Agreed. I, I'd even put it up there as one of the best of the Universal monster movies generally. Yeah, I think so. And what's fascinating about it is my favorite character of it is in 10 seconds of the movie. The actual bride is in the last like four shots of the movie and that's it. Oh, right. And who can forget that performance? I mean, that's all I remember is just what it, and she was like, oh, I, you know, wanted to emulate a bird. I'm like, that's brilliant. Why? That's so crazy. But it works so beautifully. So going back to your question, Deb, of like what kind of themes it actually did bring in. The Bride of Frankenstein is far more from the perspective of the monster himself than Frankenstein, the first one is and so you get to see him kind of wandering trying to find connection trying to find understanding and and one of my favorite parts of the novel is he hides away in this house where he overhears a family and listens and and kind of learns how learns language learns how to read starts thinking of them as his family and you have the scene with the hermit in bride where he really finally finds an actual connection and there's a real bond that's already built and that you have 
even in one scene, you have this deep emotional connection to wanting these two characters to actually have each other. And then you get to understand the struggle of the monster and why it so desperately wants a, a, a mate. Those are central themes to the novel. You know, Mary's sense of abandonment really shows through the creature's utter desire to be accepted and loved by Victor, its creator, who can never give him that love. Yeah, I totally agree. One of the other aspects of Bride of Frankenstein that's in the original novel that I wish more of the films would deal with, which is Frankenstein, the monster, becoming more like his creator, Victor, in that he's trying to have like an abnormal birth. And I think one of the core things of the Shelley story is that it deals with this kind of like bastardized birth. Mary Shelley actually came up with the idea for Frankenstein because she had a miscarriage. And so when you say the obstruction of birth or this, you know, unconventional birth, she basically birthed a dead baby, um, which is terrifying and had to go through that. Um, and that's that's where the whole idea came from. It's it's more than just, you know, God and his creation, it's mother and her child. The central theme about Mary's life is that she came up with a story in which you can give life without birth. And she's doing that as somebody who was not able to give life through birth, was not able to be in her eyes a real mother until finally, you know, she had one child who survived into adulthood. And other than that, tons of miscarriages, several children who died under the age of two. Um, so I find it beautifully tragic and slightly ironic that she is now known as the mother of these genres um, when she couldn't actually be the mother she really wanted to be. Yeah. So Bride of Frankenstein was actually David's number two. He sent his list over prior to the the recording. Um, I'm going to go ahead with my number three, which is also David's number three. Um, totally on a non-feminist lens, Frankenhooker. Oh. <laughs> oh, man. Have either of you seen this film? No, no. No, but I want to know everything. Is it good? Oh, man. <laughs> it's so, yeah, it's, it's B-horror, it's sloshy, but it's, it's so perfectly comedic and just so great. He loses his fiance to a freak um, lawnmower accident. Did we get to see this lawnmower accident? Oh, yeah, it is, it is fantastic. But of course, her body is you know, split into several different pieces. And he is very distraught over this loss in his life. I mean, maybe we can relate that back to Mary Shelley's loss. Who knows? I think it's a good reach there. And he <laughs> brings his fiance back to life, um, but he doesn't have all the body parts. So he ends up going to a brothel and creates a um, a Frankenhooker. I, ha I had to put it up here because it, it gives me joy. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, my number two is also kind of a parody. Uh, can I just bring it up there and we can talk about both yeah, of them? Yeah, do it, do it. Okay, so my number two is Weird Science. Which is oh, that's a great one. Oh, fabulous. I didn't think about fabulous. that. Right? Oh, that would yeah. be like my number one then. Which is oh, like a damn. total, like, it's Frankenstein, but what if Frankenstein just turned out being the hottest girl you ever met in your life? What do you know? <laughs> and the coolest chick. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the coolest. Uh, do you remember the beginning of the movie when they fuck up and they make the giant girl and then they, they fuck up again? They make it insulting half of her. Oh, I do remember that. I remember being very... <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it does not stand the test of uh, female audiences for sure. Modern female audiences. 
But I, I think as somebody who brings an overtly feminist lens to everything I watch, sometimes you can just kind of put that aside and be like, listen, I know what we're entering into right here. We're going to enjoy this for the sake of what it is. So yeah, Frankenhooker and, and Weird Science feel like, I don't know, they make me happy in terms of showing the incredible spectrum of what Frankenstein can mean to people. Yeah. Right. It's an easy way to put your characters into turmoil and make them think and make them have to change. And uh, it, it really does make an easy arc there for the screenwriter, I think. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, too. I, I noticed this uh, just now, actually. It seems like one of the themes. It, I don't think it's pivotal to all Frankenstein, but when they make the the creation, whether it's a monster, pretty girl, boy who's into pretty girl, like in The Skin I Live In, um it's it's an of age creation it's some it's an adult pretty much they make they it's that's why it's like a fabrication of like maternity in that there's no uh rearing process it's just here's an adult getting tossed into the world they don't belong there and they have to relearn everything oh i like that yeah Yeah, that's interesting i'm trying to come up with a like an adaptation that actually is not an adult adaptation. I have There's one. Gotta my, be one. My number one. Ooh. Yeah. Well, Nora, what was your number two? Well, I feel bad because my parody choice is my number one. But uh, so on the completely serious side, we brought it up a few times already, but, um, you know, Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, would be my number two because simply it is the only film adaptation and I will include Nightmare in that, the only <laughs> film adaptation that does a direct actual adaptation of the novel. And as somebody who's genuinely still angry, I wasn't alive in the 20s, but I'm still angry at that Frankenstein movie that Universal came out with because the bastardization of such a complex and thoughtful and nuanced and layered story into this mindless evil just dumb creature and a completely just whoops kind of scientist so having a straight adaptation of the novel I really enjoy that because at least there is a film adaptation out there that really does show the arc of the creature yeah and of course it was Kenneth Bragnall that had to do that he's so serious about his adaptations you brought up something and this is something that we've talked about on our previous episodes but Hollywood's issue with scientists they're so like throughout the decades you can almost see how much they like hate science or love art or like just see the political views on scientists we talk about this in our things episode Rob in the thing from another world and they really just think scientists are ridiculous and they're silly and mm-hmm. that you know they're not going to win any wars by splitting an atom <laughs> but i it's it's so funny that in the 20s they were really loving and like honoring the scientist as this brilliant man and that this creature who couldn't read or write at the beginning of the film was ridiculous and silly and we should just write him off even though he learns by the end of it like whatever edit this out but i'm pretty sure the movie is made in the 30s oh thank you so just a correction 1931 is when Frankenstein came out, not the 20s, but the 30s. Put that out there. Yeah, give it. It's the very early 30s, so it's basically the end of the 20s. Yeah, I. But I also the the straight adaptation. 
I, I do appreciate the attempt to do a straight adaptation, but Robert De Niro didn't really sell it for me as the monster. He really, he doesn't look like the monster. I feel like in the story, it's supposed to be, it's so scary women see it and scream. I'm like, this guy, and these are people who've probably seen lepers before. He must be terrifying looking. My number two was David's number one, actually, but Reanimator. Could not skip over this classic. I had to put it up there. And if really, if we're going to be judging any horror movies, Reanimator's always in a lot of people's top tens. You got to include it in the Frankenstein adaptation list. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a Reanimator fanboy. It's an H.P. Lovecraft adaptation also but there's more frankenstein than lovecraft in it it's weird it's a weird one because what if we made a zombie apocalypse right through frankenstein methods what does that do also can i just say that um the the doctor in it david gale um is victor frankenstein like he looks (laughs) so perfectly accurate like that is oh that face is so good yeah, yeah. They're both kind of eccentric in their own ways, which I think is cool. It's it's definitely a better image of the scientist than we get in these more like ham-fisted kind of roles, which is also what I liked about The Skin I Live In. I felt like uh, in that one, Antonio Banderas was playing it up. Then the director was like, tone it down, bro. Like, we'll do it. We'll do it more straight and people will get it. And it's a better movie for that. I really like Reanimator. I was thinking of picking that one, but I thought it would be too obvious. Yeah, you only picked it because you knew David and I were going to pick it. So, (laughs) yeah. Exactly. That's what I mean, too obvious. Not that it's not too good. It's just knowing you two, it's too obvious. Not in general. I was not. I I went straight honesty with my list. I was like, I'm not, I know what Nora's going to have for half of these. We do share one. I know we do. Rob, yours are surprising me. David did the same. Th- it was like David and I are going to have the same ones. I'm actually really happy he chose Frankenhooker because I just told him about that movie a few months ago and he watched it for the first time um, when it came on Shudder. So that makes me happy. I'm also laughing that I'm realizing now that none of my three are horror movies. Really? I, I, I consider both the adaptation, uh, the straight adaptation and Bride of Frankenstein horror movies. Yeah. Just, yeah, yeah, I think they are. They're in the horror genre, which is extremely broad. Fair enough. I mean, if, if Nightmare's yeah. in the horror genre. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, My number one is not a Yeah, let's movie. do it. Let's move on okay. to our number ones. Uh, Rob, you're up first, and we'll get to Nora. Okay, uh, mine mine is a horror movie, but uh, it's it's a, there's a lot more emotional drama in it than most horror films. Uh, it's also science fiction horror. It's Splice. Oh, come on. With Adrian Brody. No. Splice. <laughs> oh, Rob, I I was so proud. I was so proud. You didn't pick Splice, did no, you? No, I hate that movie. <laughs> I know, it, I know. It has incest, Rob. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's 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 it deals yeah, with interesting. it deals with strange concepts. Yeah. So. Um, oh my god. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen Splice, uh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go with the gender thing here. Every girl I've ever talked to hates this movie. I think it's great. I saw it in high school with my high school girlfriend, and when we left, she said she was celibate for the rest of her life. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so that was a good date. That went well for you. You were really happy with that yeah yeah it was good i was like that movie's great i'm like walking out like wow it's so good she's like i'm going celibate 
So uh, on the on the flip side, this is one of the few Frankenstein movies where they make the creation and it comes out as an infant and it updates the story to we're not going to resurrect dead things. We're going to make something new through DNA sequencing. It kind of becomes their daughter, but they don't really know how to treat it. And it's got a tail with a stinger on it. Well, and, and this this is the issue. And this is why my reaction is this way. And I'm sure this is why uh, the girl you went on a date with to see this movie reacted this way. It really takes the creator and creation to a whole different, darker level. And it feels like rape. I'm just going to say it. Um, It is the creation is under. She she is locked up in this attic in the house. She knows nobody else but her so-called parents, her creators. And he takes the creator takes advantage of that and like tries to force this sexual relationship and it is a very, very uncomfortable scene. And yeah, it's pretty fucking honest, I guess. But I'm sure every woman can relate to being in this powerless situation where someone, just because he's a man, just because he is, has a little more power than you can, like, force this relationship on you or force you into something that you don't want to do. Um, she, it, It's so sad because this creation literally knows nothing else, knows no one else but him. Well, uh, it's true. There's There's two rape scenes in the movie. In the scenario with Adrian Brody, his character's name is Clive, and Dren, the creation, uh, she's stronger than him. She can kill him easily, and she comes on to him, but there's this power dynamic that you can't get past, where people have called him Woody Allen. You know, he plays Woody Mm. Allen in the movie. Yeah, I think it deals with some really dark themes. I don't think it justifies them in either way. Nora, have you seen it? I haven't. I haven't. I'm kind of disturbingly curious now but um looking it up while you were talking about this it it also um it's giving me a little bit of like uh island of dr moreau a little bit vibe as well this kind of dna splicing and kind of creating this new thing to control yeah the creature design looks pretty phenomenal and what i can only assume based off of um stylings later is a more sexualized sexual like beautiful character they sexualize a creature uh, it's strange. Yeah, I mean that's definitely part one of the points of the movie is that it's like this this uh, kind of like fetishism with like at, like godhood in like the scientific community. Yeah. You know, they kind of like right. fetishize that, which which I found really interesting. Um, it's also worth noting, just to be specific, uh, the ti- the timeline of the creature is sped up really mm-hmm. fast. So like it's an infant, and then all of a sudden it's like a teenager in the next scene, and by the end it's it's like a young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but Adrian Brody's character still sleeps with her, but in the reality of it, she's like two weeks old. I suggest watching the movie. You might fucking hate it. You might fucking hate it. It like it deals with rape like explicitly, but I don't think it says anything good about it. I mean, it doesn't justify it. No, way. it doesn't. But um, Nora, I I'm gonna guess ours number one is the same. So please, please tell us. My favorite and probably one of my favorite movies of all time is Young Frankenstein. Yes, 1000% knew this was coming. <laughs> this is also my number one. I totally agree. Please take it away. I Everything you were saying. I, I don't even know where to start. I love this movie so much. The thing that always sticks with me, which is not, I think, the first thing that everybody else thinks about, but for me, the score, and specifically mm-hmm. the violin track that is used, that is this incredibly haunting melody, but it's used in this very ironic sense the amount of quotes that you can just pull from it. Mel Brooks is just a genius. And as far as I know, not a creep. So also somebody that I absolutely <laughs> adore. 
And I love the fact that it just takes all of these ridiculous universal notions and makes fun of it, but in such this lighthearted and joyous way. You, you start off with Gene Wilder going, it's Frankenstein and stabbing his own <laughs> leg with a scalpel. The very opening is seeing this casket <laughs> and the hands grabbing Yay. the book back, right? Uh, and so it's, it's setting you up into this really cool, dark, gothic world and then just being like, yeah, but let's have fun. And it does it so well just because it shows such knowledge of not just the films that you have described, like literally all the films up to that point of, of Frankenstein, but also the book. It, it shows that Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder, who co-wrote it, yes? Yeah, um, yeah. They, they really, really studied to, to make those jokes. And the reason why those jokes are successful is because we all know the basis of them and we know exactly what they're making fun of. It, it It's such a poke, yeah, directly at the media. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm just speaking of it, Gene Hackman's in this movie for a minute, right? Yes. Yeah, he's and he's one of the best parts. He's the blind guy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he's the her. He's the blind. <laughs> he's the heart. He's the exact out of right. Like I, I mentioned that scene from Bride of Frankenstein. They do the parody of that with Gene Hackman, where he lights <laughs> the monster's finger on fire instead of it being <laughs> a cigar. It's just brilliant. That is so oh, it's funny. So good. Oh, that is. I I'm gonna watch that movie again tonight. It's like, <laughs> that it's was such a funny oh, movie. Always. Yeah. That was the movie we watched on rap night for Nightmare. After <laughs> oh, such oh, a so good. torturous few weeks of just dark, deep scenes. We were like, let's watch some young. Yeah, we, we watched it on uh, rap night, but also on, on premiere night after streaming Nightmare. We were like, great. Now we're going to wrap it up with some young Frankenstein again. <laughs> I was going to put that on my list too, but I was like, ah, it's too obvious. They're going to pick it. You wanted to be unique. Well, I was, I was trying, I wanted to, bring up this discussion of what it means to be a Frankenstein movie. I love it. No, I love that. Yeah. Because I went with the obvious ones, but I couldn't help myself with Young Frankenstein. That was just a given. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you did because we, we got to have a good discussion about it all, you know? Nora, it was so lovely having you on the podcast. I'm so happy we got to talk about this. Um, Rob, I'm happy that you got to join in on our conversation of Frankenstein that we've been having for five, six years at this point. So <laughs> yeah, well, I'm really glad I did. And uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. I really enjoyed it. So Nora, um, where can people find you? Where they, where can they find the film? Ah, yes. Um, so A Nightmare Wakes can be seen on Shudder. Also, very importantly, it is out on VOD right now, as well as can be purchased as a DVD, which is crazy and weird to be able to hold a physical copy of Eight Years of Your Life. And then I'm also just on Instagram and Twitter at Nora Uncle, if you want to say hi or see some BTS, come say <laughs> hi. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you all so much for having me. Thanks, Nora, again. And everyone listening, we'd love to hear your top three um, Frankenstein adaptation films. So please uh, tweet at us, Instagram, Facebook, at CadaverDogsPod, or send us an email at CadaverDogsPodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you all in the next one. Bye. Cue It's Alive from Frankenstein. It's alive! It's alive! Hey folks, before you press that skip button, I'm going to let you know the films we'll be covering on our next episode. David, Rob, and I are going to dig into films about cursed images. And what better movie to start us off than Ringu? 
Ringu is the original 1998 J horror film that was later remade into The Ring. But we're watching Ringu, not The Ring, just to be clear. Our second film is a fan favorite, and apparently, according to science, is the scariest movie ever made? I don't know. That's fucking bullshit. Whatever. Anyway, we'll be covering Sinister. As always, we highly suggest that you watch these movies before listening, but if you don't, that's totally okay. You can still listen along. It's still going to be a good time. If you do end up watching, be sure to tweet us your thoughts at Cadaver Dogs Pod. All right, so that's Ringu and Sinister next week right here on Cadaver Dogs Podcast. See ya, pups.